I expect all of us have uh, read some of these articles uh, that are around these days extolling the benefits of meditation and research is being done and putting people under various experimental situations and testing <coughs> the brain and and analyzing the data and coming up with evidence about how wonderful and amazing and useful meditation is. Uh, also, I've noticed there are articles around uh, saying other things about meditation. And it seems to be that there are more people who have tried meditation and then after a while given it up and uh, have a lot to say about how unhelpful meditation is or even how dangerous it is not to mention how difficult and counterproductive and maybe even life-destroying meditation can be. And uh, these reports are not necessarily by people who haven't given it a fair whack. You know, they're not just like somebody who did one Vipassana course in India and then dropped it. But you know, sometimes people who've, who've hammered away for years at meditation and uh, gone away feeling very disappointed and disillusioned. Well, personally, I'm not actually surprised that this is a result for a lot of people because, as you can imagine in my position, I, I hear from people a lot about their practice, what they get up to and the results that they have. And the approach that a lot of people have to meditation is almost guaranteed to bring about disappointment. When we first come across these teachings and, and uh, something that's very clear is presented to us, something that we can actually do, this is not just something to believe in or go along with or whatever, but something we can actually do about our consciousness. Um, I know for myself, it was, I imagine for a lot of other people, it gives a lot of hope. You feel very good about it. And so we enter into the experiment of meditation with a lot of enthusiasm and, and not a lot of views and opinions. And we just have, we, we have some trust and some confidence and some, some energy and we, we throw ourselves into this practice and, and maybe we have some results. But what do we do with the results? Yeah. It's very easy to 
once we've had some experience, even if we've had some sort of special experience in meditation, something quite extraordinary, something really different from anything else we've experienced, it's very easy. It's the easiest thing for us to then uh, grab a hold of the memory, cling to the memory of that experience, and try and repeat it, presuming that it was a pleasant experience. Or if it's not a pleasant experience, then there's the fear. We can still cling to the memory of it, and we're afraid that that's going to be repeated. But in this situation, I'm talking about the pleasant memories that come when we begin meditating, and and then we just want to repeat them over and over again. And sometimes the way that meditation is taught uh, actually uh, encourages this kind of attitude. And meditation is taught more as a technique, kind of like a technician's approach. And for some people, the technician's approach to meditation is perhaps what is needed. But I don't think it suits everybody. And it took me a long time to realize that a technician's approach doesn't suit me. That if I approach meditation as a technician, with different stages to go through and techniques to master, and you've got to do this, then you've got to do that, then it brings about a certain sort of rigidity to my mind. The attention is not, is not an expansive attention. It's, uh, it tends to forget about the body. It tends to want to exclude all aspects of the mind and just focus very intently on an object. And, and, and it really feeds into very much the gaining mind. That I want to go somewhere. That basically there's something wrong with me which is obvious, and, I, and this is what's going to fix it. But my experience was, and I see it's also the case for many other people, that if we follow this approach to meditation, of having had an initial interesting, good experience, and then we really grasp the technique even more firmly, and we bang away at it, trying to get results, that that kind of willfulness can in fact do more damage, more harm than good. And it seems to me these days that particularly for us with in the West with our very, very advanced willful attitude to life, you know, it's not the case that everybody in the world behaves like we do. You, know, you just travel to India or, or, or Asia and you you see how laid back and relaxed people are and, and how trusting they are. And, you know, mystery and myth and faith, these things are really profoundly important in their culture. In our culture, we, we distrust everything. We're taught to doubt everything, to question everything. Myth is a dirty word. Uh, rituals are, are just for ignorant people. So really, the fact is we have a very different sort of consciousness and uh, in one aspect, and particularly this uh, willfulness, uh, I think we need to be really, really careful that we're not bringing this into what is an effect, uh, really, the, the, perhaps, you say, the most important aspect of our lives. Now, of course, you know, having good health is important, having nice relationships is important, having money, having food, having shelter, all these things are important, but when we die, the most important thing is going to be the state of our consciousness. And so the, the way we 
enter into our inner exploration, the way we connect with, the kind of relationship we cultivate with our inner life is the most important aspect of our life. And so we don't, we don't want to do that in a brutal sort of a technician's way. I, I find that, that the life of meditation, the life of contemplation, is, is more of an artistic exercise, an artistic activity. It's more of an artistic activity than a, than a technique. Yes, it's true that uh, in the beginning, even with uh, learning uh, the skills involved in a particular art, like playing a musical instrument, we do need to learn the techniques. You know, you, sometimes the techniques are pretty boring. And um, just got to go over and over and over them until like you're playing a guitar or a violin. You, how do you move your fingers? How do you hold your wrist? How do you hold the instrument? And if we, we don't learn to hold it properly, well, then lots of beautiful possibilities are not available to us. So with learning any particular art form, there is, of course, the aspect whereby we do need to learn some techniques. You know, we learn them, we practice them over and over. We put hours and hours and hours into learning to play the instrument or to use the, the medium of paint or to hold the camera or whatever the art form it is that we're engaged in. But once we've internalized uh, those techniques, once they've really become ours, well then, perhaps it's a time to really let the, the spirit of the artist flow through us. And, and I, I'm suggesting that it's the same with meditation. That if we don't feel we've got permission because... We love our teachers or, or we started off by using techniques that we can't move out of being a technician in meditation and become an artist, then maybe we don't progress very far. Maybe we don't get past a certain point. Maybe our own creativity doesn't, doesn't kick in to the point where we can meet our personal problems in our own way as we actually need to. Because if we don't do that then our interest is not really engaged in practice. And so some of these people who write very articulate commentaries on how pointless and useless meditation is, it's possible that maybe they weren't, they didn't feel they had permission to get creative about their practice. Maybe they felt that all there was to practice was doing this technique over and over again. Certainly it took me a very long time before I felt confident in uh, practicing the way that I wanted to. You know, I was very afraid that if I practiced on my own terms, well then it would be the ego taking over. Ego would kick in and I'm practicing. Well, of course, I have enough appreciation of the possibilities of practice and the basic understanding of Buddhism to know that, that uh, self-obsession is, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the main obstruction to enlightenment and to freedom and to well-being and so I don't want to risk getting caught up in self-obsession. But that's the opposite. That's the extreme opposite of just giving our power over to, completely to somebody else or to some technique. Just because some teacher or some school or some master tells us what we should be doing doesn't mean to say they know what we should be doing. Not at all. So the extreme opposite of that is just to ignore them and just do what I want and, and not really heed what they say. But maybe there's an in-between ground whereby we can 
listen out of respect and appreciation to the teachings given by the tradition, but also listen to ourselves. And this kind of sounds like mindfulness, doesn't it? Sort of the middle way, mindfulness, you know. It's not grasping at my own ways of doing things. It's not grasping at the teacher's way of doing things. It's holding these things lightly. So, as I said, it took me a very long time before I felt confident in engaging my own approaches to practice. Yes, I had some interesting and delightful experiences concentrating on the breath and, and dropping into pleasant states of mind and so on. But did that really help me deal with the obstructions that I, this person, this deluded, confused character had to deal with? Well, only up to a point, and then they failed miserably. So I suspect really this happens to most people, that they get to a point where they feel like they're banging their head up against a brick wall. And so the reason I'm talking about this this evening is because I would like to encourage people to respectfully and gently listen to what's coming from inside of us. We listen to what's coming from outside, from the books, from the teachers, from the traditions, but also to listen to what's coming from inside of us, to feel what's coming from inside of us. Not to assume that absolutely this insightful, amazing approach that I've come up with is going to be the way, but just to gradually, not to assume that it's not going to be the way, but just to gradually apply it. On the very first meditation retreat I ever went on, doing what the teacher told, anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing while I was sitting, and then walking meditation, walking up and down, feeling the pressure of the foot on the ground. And and, uh, I I can still remember on the third day of this retreat, you've perhaps heard me talk about it before, it was such a a wonderful experience to to suddenly have this perception of inner peace, inner calm. There's just this quietness. It was out there in the countryside, walking up and down. It was on a gravel road out in a remote part of Australia, a place called Nimbin, actually. And uh, just a dirt road and walking up and down on my own there and, and after a while the mind just recognized it was this state of wonderful ease and peacefulness and and then this voice which this chatterbox which likes to have an opinion about everything came up and said there's just awareness made the observation or maybe it was this just knowing it's so long ago now I don't remember but that was just awareness well then, the one that wants to challenge everything and question absolutely everything, asks the question, but who's aware? And then the mind dropped into an even nicer place, very still. Now it wasn't because I was really concentrating hard on my meditation object, but there was this very interesting question came up, and it took me to a very nice place, which felt very genuine. Unfortunately, from one perspective, um, either I didn't talk to the teacher about it or the teacher didn't recognize how that might be a useful key to unlock my practice for me. One way or another, it took me a very long time before I recognized for what it was. This is not, this is not new. I mean, lots of people use this as a, as, a, as a form of training in their practice, as a way of, of directing that interest in traveling the inner journey, asking the right questions asking your own question. So I would say that uh, whilst, yes, still, I would find there are times when concentrating on a meditation object, it 
is a pleasant, agreeable thing to do. That's more like what Ajahn Tate used to say. That's just like going on a holiday. Ajahn Tate used to tell the monks that that um, that you're going on a holiday is, is samadhi. He would, he would encourage us to cultivate samadhi. He said other people, they go off on holidays, but you've got to cultivate samadhi, that's you're going on holiday. But we don't all go on holidays, do we? That's not life is not going on holiday. Life or the work, and for me the work, the most interesting, some of the most interesting work I do is asking this question. Yeah, it's interesting to think about buildings here in the monastery. It's interesting to think about developing the lake and it's interesting to talk about planning permission. But some of the most interesting work is asking this inner question of who? Or even who's asking the questions? That's an incredibly interesting question. If it's, if it's asked in the right way, if it's asked because it's your question to ask, and not because I told you or because somebody else told you, but rather to allow our very creative, well-trained, discerning minds to serve our interest in liberation. It's it's longing to do it. I think that's my experience. My mind was longing to help me. Now, a lot of people think that their minds are are an enemy to spiritual life. All they want to do is tell their minds to shut up. And they concentrate, 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 trying to make their mind quiet. Well, a little bit of that's okay, but maybe... You know, there's other approaches as well. Maybe you can make your mind your friend. And if your friend is inclined to share this journey and to come up with interesting questions, your interesting question, well, perhaps it'll be profoundly relevant to your practice. So again, to emphasize this, because you can read about other teachers who talk about asking questions and you can pick it up as a technique and and you can just do it because the teacher said to do it. Master Xu Yun, the great Chinese meditation master of the last century, he used this in the technique which they call the Hua To, their their profound question practice, which, again, asking who. When Ajahn Fan, one of the uh, disciples of Ajahn Man, was caught up in, in fear in his practice, and he went to see Ajahn Fan went to see Ajahn Man about it and, and Ajahn Man didn't just say, well, go and concentrate on your breath. Ajahn Man asked Ajahn Fan about his fear. He said, well, who's afraid? Yeah. Sri Ramana Maharshi, many of you will have heard of the great uh, Advaita uh, teacher of the last century in India. That was also his uh, regular teaching to ask the question, who? To undo the tangle. A question, if asked at the right way at the right time, in the right direction, starts to tease out the threads of the tangle of contracted egoic delusion. And he did talk about it as a teaching technique, as a meditation tool. He said it's like the stick that you use to turn the corpse in the fire. You know, if you're burning a body, which you know most of us don't ever have to do that, but uh, in India it's quite a normal thing to do, and even in Thailand we would see the same thing happening that in the village somebody dies they bring the village to the monastery and there's a uh, there's a place built there where they can do concrete steps and the body is pitched in between and the fire is let in between them and then the body is burnt and at some stage you usually need to have a stick to poke the body to turn it and often it's need, you need to whack the skull 
so it'll all burn up. So Sri Ramana Maharshi was saying that the meditation tool, technique, asking the question, who is like that? The ego is what, what is being transformed, is what's being dealt with. But he said eventually what you need to do is to throw the stick in the fire as well. So you, know, you don't want to get the idea that we can ask the question, who? If it happens to be your question. And just grasp that as a technique that's going to get me liberated. And so when I say that it was the ego that's being dealt with in the, in the furnace, it's not the case that, that the ego itself is the problem, or the mind itself is the problem. It's the deluded ego, the contracted ego, a self-centeredness that's our problem, that's our issue. That's where all our energy is being gobbled up by this construction. And so how do we release the energy out of that? How do we undo it? Yes, there's a stage where learning to bring the mind to concentration, to one-pointedness, to focus, to steadiness, that's an aspect of it. But do we take that all away? Not necessarily. Not for everybody. I expect there are somebody, they take it nearly all the way, and then just at the very last stage of practice, I'm told, they turn to ask some some very subtle questions at just the right time and the whole thing undoes and they find the freedom they're looking for. But that may not be the way for all of us. I suspect it's not the way for many of us, actually. So just to take this in and listen to it and to consider and, and, and feel maybe you know our mind is not our enemy. You know, we don't have to tell our mind to shut up all the time. Maybe we can make friends with our mind and listen to it. It's, it's willingness to question and to help it question in the right way. Ask and ye shall be given, is what the Christians say. But uh, And I used to do it a lot when I was a Christian. I used to ask all the time. But, but I didn't do it in the right way, and so I didn't get the results I was looking for. It was only many years later I met a Christian monk who, who was pointing out how, you know, it's not just asking, but you've got to ask in the right way. If we're not asking from the right place, then of course we're not going to get the right answer. So with our inner inquiry, with our inner journey, Yes, we might come up with our own personal question that starts to undo us, but we've got to be very careful what, what energy drives our questioning. Yeah, it's a, it comes with a humble recognition that we don't know. I can have a very clear recognition of in my first year of meditation when I was trying to use this questioning practice, and, but I was using it like a, like a sledgehammer like a knife attacking the enemy and that didn't work very well didn't help at all became very sick actually so asking the question gently respectfully sincerely it's like talking to the Buddha actually you know, how would we talk to the Buddha if we met him if we're asking the Buddha a question that's a good way to view it I think also, I like to remember, reflect on a, a, um, a question Ajahn Chah asked once. It's, it's, I, think it's, uh, I think it's printed in a question and answer session in the front of the, the book we've just printed, uh, Seeing the Way, Volume 2. In fact, it was in Seeing the Way, Volume 1 as well. I think it's included in there. Certainly it was included in the original talk where these young monks were asking Ajahn Chah 
about the original mind. And Ajahn Chah said, what do you mean by the original mind? And if you make the original mind into something, that's not the original mind. If there's anything there, just throw it out. You can call it the original mind if you want to, but that's not the word, the original mind. The term, the concept is not the original mind, or is not what you're pointing to. What is really original is inherently pure. And there's nothing you can say about it. If you want to say something about it, then we use these words. But you don't want to get caught up in the words and the concepts. So what he was talking about on this, this occasion of, uh, to these young monks, he was explaining that it's very easy to get caught up in the concepts or you know, the ideas of practice. And, and in the course of the conversation with these monks, you know, he came out with this, this wonderful question, which is, in what is all this arising and ceasing? You can be watching the arising, 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 ceasing, 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 arising, ceasing, arising, ceasing. You can be watching that all the time, but in what is all this arising and ceasing? I find that a beautiful question. We can say, oh yeah, there's, there's a thought arising and ceasing. There's a feeling arising and ceasing. You can spend all your time arising, ceasing, arising, ceasing, but what's it happening in? What it's happening in is, whatever the word we give to it, awareness, knowingness, whatever we want to call it. But whatever word we put on it, of course, is not it. And that's also another interesting element of it, that maybe the uh, effort we put into practice takes us in the direction we want to go, and we do start to, we do actually have a moment or two or or maybe a few moments of opening up to the experience of abiding as awareness. And we can see with a new perspective. And, but then later on, we don't have direct access anymore to that experience of abiding as awareness. And what we have is a memory. And so we've got to be very careful. We don't just grasp the memory because the memory is not awareness. The memory is more content of awareness. There's more dust floating around in the empty space. That is awareness. So whatever question we need to ask or whatever effort we need to make that takes us back until we can fall into that experience of abiding as awareness. Not rejecting the techniques. Yes, techniques help us, but not believing in the techniques. Techniques can become like idols, just the same as Buddha images can become idols. Buddha images are beautiful, some of them. Some of them are really goofy, actually. And some of them should never have been made. But some of them are very beautiful, and they can be very inspiring and and uplifting. I know the Buddha didn't encourage it. We all know the Buddha recommended the wheel or the empty seat or the footprint or the Bodhi tree. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the stupa. But then later on, when the Greeks arrived in Afghanistan, they came across Buddhism and they introduced these Greek gods and uh, so we can start getting Buddha images that look like they've got togas on and top knots and, and they're known in tradition as the Gandhara Buddhas which there are still some of these in the museums in Kabul, the ones that haven't been destroyed but uh, even though there weren't Buddha images around at the time of the Buddha, we have them now and they can be very inspiring and uplifting but they're there to bow down, bow down to to remind us that there is this potential 
That Buddha image in itself doesn't have anything more than we project onto it. But it's helpful to have a Buddha image to project onto. Just like it's helpful to have a mirror. When I was up in Scotland some years ago and I was on my own on retreat up there and and I got something wrong with my eye and I couldn't understand what it was and I, scratching my eye was so itchy and I was up there in the middle of a, a private retreat and what am I going to do with this? And, and then I realized that actually I had a tick right on my eyelid, on my bottom eyelid and, and I was trying to hold my glasses in a way whereby I could see the tick and get at the tick and without getting at my eye <laughs> and it was very really difficult but without the mirror I would have really been in trouble. So actually we need something that reflects back to us. It's functional. And so we can use Buddha images. We can use teachers like that. We can use the, the wheel, the Dhammachaka wheel, things that remind us of the Buddha and the potential for perfect wisdom, perfect compassion. But the Buddha image is not perfect wisdom and not perfect compassion. If the Taliban come along and nick our Buddha image, well, I feel sorry for them, but we'll get over it. You know, that's not the Buddha. Yeah. Likewise, a meditation technique is not the Buddha. The concept of awareness is not the Buddha. Yeah. But we use these concepts of awareness. We use the model of the space with specks of dust floating through it as an image to remind us of the work we need to do. So we have these guidelines, we have these tools, we have these techniques which we can apply in formal practice, and then also techniques that help us in daily life like the five precepts that's a very good technique it's just a form you know the words the Pali words or the English words I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings English words Pali words those are just words but what they represent is a spirit that's the form what they represent is a spirit to inhibit the intention to cause harm now, that form is very helpful. It reminds us that the spirit matters to us. Our heart, our heart of hearts does not want to cause harm to any living beings. Without that form, we could forget that spirit. We could forget the message. We could forget the meaning of not wanting to cause harm to living beings and get caught up in harmfulness. So the form has got a point. So the five precepts are definitely a useful technique, a useful form. Or techniques that bring us back to mindfulness in the moment, bring us back to the body. I learned a really neat technique from Ruth Dennison, who some of you will have heard of, a very, a very wonderful teacher in America. And uh, anyway, one of her meditation techniques is to have people stand on one leg. And um, I use this sometimes when I'm on the telephone to people. Sometimes people ring me up and they're in a complete mess. And they just down the phone, maybe it's tears, grief, confusion, whatever. And so I say, okay, come on, let's both of us get up and stand on one leg. And I say, I beg your pardon. <laughs> say, no, no, I'm serious, I'm serious. We'll talk about your problem. Yeah, we, we, we can talk about your problem, but right now let's stand on one leg. And I say, you see, I'm serious. If you want to talk to me, I'm happy to talk to you, but we've got to stand on one leg first. And so there you are in the middle of the room with your telephone and one ear standing on one leg. It's a very interesting exercise. You've really got to actually come back into the body. You've really got to come back into the body 
And after a while of standing on one leg, you go back into the head and you start to wobble and you're about to fall over and you've got to come back very quickly into the body again. So, but I can't think about my problem while I'm <laughs> standing on one leg. Well, that's good because that's what you rang me up about. You can't stop thinking about your problem. Yeah. Or perhaps I'm not quite so flippant when I'm talking to them. But the exercise is very good. Yeah, if you find yourself totally caught up in something, it's a good technique. But you don't want to grasp the technique and become like one of those Indian ascetics that refuses to walk on two legs. They, all they do is stand on one leg. They've missed the point. You know, standing on one leg all day long thinking that's going to give you liberation is probably seriously confused. Well, whatever exercise we're doing, you know, I was telling the monks the other day how I heard of a monastery where the abbot wouldn't allow there to be a washing machine because the abbot thought that the monks would get lazy, the monks and nuns would get lazy if they had a washing machine. And, uh, or like Ajahn Chah wouldn't allow electricity in the monastery for many years because he wanted us to pull water from the well by hand. He thought it was a good exercise, you know, embodying the mindfulness practice. And so this abbot didn't want there to be a washing machine. But one way or another, I don't know whether they were given a washing machine or something happened. Anyway, the monastery ended up with a washing machine. So the abbot said, okay, when you put your clothes in the washing machine, now you've got to sit there and watch the washing go round and round in a circle. You're not allowed to just push the button and go away and get heedless again. You've got to sit there with your back straight. It was a Zen monastery. So you couldn't just sit like we do, you know, relax. You've got to sit there back straight, looking at the washing going round and round. Well, when I first ordained, I was living in a monastery in Bangkok. In that monastery, you're allowed to smoke cigarettes. Ajahn Chah banned cigarette smoking in his monastery. But this monastery in Bangkok I stayed in, you were allowed to smoke cigarettes. In those days, I was still smoking. And, but the rule was you weren't allowed to s- smoke unless you were sitting down. Okay. So you had to, if you're going to smoke, you've got to fully smoke. Now, I'm not advocating that practice. I really think smoking is a bad idea. So please don't hear that I'm advocating taking up smoking. But the point is, the message that was being given, the message of the form, the spirit of this form, was to do what you're doing. And if you're washing clothes, we'll sit there and watch the washing machine go round and round and fully wash the clothes. Now, probably none of you are going to do that, I understand. But again, the message is uh, to do what we're doing. We need techniques. So we're standing on one leg. You know, or this evening, in fact, while I was getting ready to come to puja, I grabbed my robe and I was putting it on and I was busy thinking, what shall I talk about? What shall I say? And then I caught myself you know, you're thinking about what you're going to say, but you're not doing what you're doing. So actually putting your robe on. Okay, put your robe on. When you're putting your robe on, put your robe on. When we're doing the dishes, do the dishes. Usually when you do the dishes, we've got the radio on, or or we're chatting to somebody, or we're thinking about, oh, God, I hope the dishes are finished soon. We're not doing what we're doing. Yet we've all heard... Many teachers say many times, over and over again, that the practice of mindfulness is here and now. The Buddha said the past is dead, the future is not yet born. The only reality we have access to is this reality, here and now. We need techniques, we need forms to help bring ourselves back to this moment. But the spirit is awareness in this moment. The forms, the techniques which help us do it. So if we're a technician... If we're fundamentally, if it's in our character to be a technician, well, then maybe we just keep finding more and more techniques. We study the techniques and hope they work for us. But 
if the artist's approach appeals to you, or if you have a, a you know, just a slightly creative, wild, deviant impulse to meditate in a different way, don't necessarily be afraid of it. Don't assume that it's not your mind actually coming to help you on this inner journey. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.